Hello, everybody. This is Chaubert. Chaubert back live. Well, recorded technically, um, but live at this uh, the Chaubert show uh, with our new guest. I'm very honored and privileged to have uh, Micah Isugawa, who is a Forbes 30 under 30 entrepreneur uh, with a actually very interesting background. And I'd like to introduce yourself uh, and your, your background. And uh, yeah, thanks again for coming on my show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, so yeah, my name's Micah. My background is a little bit scattered, uh, but I'll just start with the professional side. Okay. Um, but I spent some time uh, studying at Stanford University. Um, I took some time off on a leave of absence to perform uh, with the circus. So I performed for Cirque du Soleil for a couple years and then went back to Stanford. Um, and then after returning to school, I worked for a couple startups in multiple different industries. So fintech, cybersecurity, a little bit of research and uh, kind of user experience type research. And then ultimately, I landed uh, as a engineer at Microsoft. And so I was there for about a year. Uh, started and ended in the pandemic. And then most recently, I started my own company. So I started Webacy, which is um, helping users secure their digital assets for the unexpected. Wow, that's incredible background. So you mentioned, um, you know, and then where did you actually grow up? At? I'm curious, like, where did you like reborn, raised in the Bay Area, um, US globally? Like, what's, that, what's that background like? I was born and raised in Tokyo. So I was born... Um, mm -hmm. It is a little place called Musashi Kogane. It's about a 40-minute train ride from downtown Tokyo. And I was raised there until I was around four or five. Um, and then my family moved to Minnesota. And then the next five years, I went back and forth between Japan and the States. So kind of raised between both. Wow. Uh, that's incredible. So I, how would that work? Would it be like summers? You'd be in Japan mostly the rest of the school year here? Or you'd actually be six, six months here, six months there? Yeah, you got uh, the first part. So basically, you know how the United States has like a three-month summer vacation. So I would go to Japan yeah. for those three months and go to school there because Japan kind of has school over the summer and live yeah. there for three Wow. Um, I know for a fact, like I know my parents, uh, you know, immigrant parents and the pressure on math, they put me into like these programs in summertime no matter where we were here. Uh, mm -hmm. So I can imagine. And, and then uh, what, uh, what from Minnesota, like what got you they decided to come to like Actually, of all places, Stanford. Yeah, you know, I, as a high schooler, I was very, you know, uh, on top of my schoolwork and cared about it. But when I thought about college, I didn't really have that strict of a plan. Like, I wasn't the type of kid that did it, like any kind of college prep, or I didn't have like a tutor or anything. Um, I was kind of left to my own devices to figure out what I wanted to do. And mm. I applied to a couple, like, quote unquote, safety schools, but they were just, you know, the University of Minnesota, maybe a few places my friends applied to, but. When I visited Stanford, it's kind of a silly story, but, um, you know, Stanford's a big name school, but I didn't really think too much of it. But when I first arrived on campus, for some reason, um, well, first of all, it's gorgeous. It's absolutely yes. beautiful, but <laughs> it just, it smelled like chocolate chip cookies. And I'm not sure where exactly I was, but I just thought that was a great sign. And my favorite color is red. So I applied and luckily got in and that's, that's kind of the end of that story. Wow. So uh, chocolate chip cookies and your uh, favorite color. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, uh, it's really random. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. I mean, everybody has a unique story. Uh, do you have any uh, like stories as a kid growing up, uh, you know, in U.S. and in Japan, where you said, "Wow, this like that maybe was like an aha moment um, that you." I mean, obviously not at that point, but looking back now, uh, you said, "Okay, that probably was a moment that you knew you might be more of an entrepreneur um, than basically like just going a typical career path." Yeah, I mean, looking back, I think there might have been a couple signs. Um, <laughs> as a kid, I was kind of someone who had a lot of different hobbies. And so I would 
like make bracelets or bake cakes. And eventually I would, I would always find a way to kind of spin it into something. So for example, sure. like in elementary school, I used to make these like kind of like friendship bracelets, but they were beaded and they were actually kind of high quality if I think back on it. And I would sell them to my friends and then the school found out and they said that I couldn't sell um, at school. And so I actually just started selling them after school on like outside of the school after school had ended. And it was just kind of this back and forth with the school of them telling me I couldn't sell to the other kids. And I just trying to find loopholes. And, um, wow. and then I did a cake business where I'd make cakes for my friend's birthdays and all these things. But looking back, I think I always had that entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, I guess if you look at it now and you did this, it could be easier almost to do it online. Um, <laughs> totally. Yeah. Um, and then, you mentioned that uh, after, either during or after Stanford, you you decided to take a, a leave of absence to go to the Circus Soleil, which I think Circus Soleil is probably the most professional and the largest organization that uh, obviously before the pandemic would travel around the world and have these incredible um, shows. So do you um, you know do you want to give it like a quick high level about this organization, how you got part of it? Because um, I think a lot of people in actually in tech probably don't even know much about it. Yeah, yeah. So you've got the background, right? Cirque du Soleil is probably one of the largest global like circus acrobatics and performance entertainment companies that you could probably ever find. Um, and they're just full of an incredibly talented set of artists and acrobats, musicians, uh, technical yes. like technical people. It's really amazing. But um, my intro into circus arts, I actually went to this circus school for youth. So there was a place called Circus Juventus in Minnesota, and it was the largest youth circus school in North America. Um, and I went there as a hobby after school and every year I got more and more into it. So that was my, that was my hobby. That was my after school activity. Um, and there then, a lot of, uh, gymnastics Olympians actually that come from Minnesota, if I'm not mistaken, one of the most recent, uh, gold, uh, gold medalists is actually yes. from Minnesota. Um, you're right. You're right. She won, she is the, from Minnesota, which is a big, like home state kind of pride. Yeah, that's incredible. And I know Circus Soleil is actually uh, a Canadian based company that just, uh, uh, took off pretty well. I forgot which book. There was a good, a really good book recently I read that talked about the story. And um, it might have been in like the 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 Blue Ocean book, where basically they described this. This uh, traditional circuses have been known to be like taboo, um, and uh, I mean not taboo, but like for families, and and it's like uh, it, it's just weird because they're they're known to be more like carnies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you you know people who are just like. Uh, just scrubbing along going through like any town possible to make a living versus there's this high-end quality like you said uh of grabbing some of the best artists in the world to do like trapeze work to um to have live music uh, and then the audience is literally jam-packed really close so you could they'll fly right right above you um to have like the really full-on experience embedded um so it's definitely very fascinating that you were part of this. How long were you there for um doing this for? And were you traveling or were you like at one of the shows say in Las Vegas? Yeah, so I was with Cirque du Soleil. I performed with a show called Totem, uh which is a touring show. So I was with them for around 2 years and we traveled um the the tour itself travels all around the world, but I was specifically there for the Japan, uh Russia and Europe part of the tour. Cool. That must have been incredible. <laughs> yeah, it's inc- the the people who I worked with were just absolutely incredible at what they did, and it's very uh, humbling to be around people who are the best in the world at what they do. Yeah, yeah, and 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 what 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 was the point uh, that you said? You know, I had my little moment with this. This is probably not more of a career path. Uh, now I want to get back and do what I studied for. Uh, did you have that kind of aha moment, or 
or was it something you just wanted to travel, enjoy yourself, and then come, you knew you were going to come back anyways? Yeah, I think for me, um, when I decided to leave Stanford to go to Cirque du Soleil or to, to kind of go on the circus path, um, I knew that I would always return. So traditionally, a lot of the people that work for Cirque du Soleil as acrobats may come from a gymnastics background or sports background or a actual like circus training trained background. Yeah. Um, and I was a kind of an odd case that I did not come from that background. And so um, I had a lot of other interests. I had I knew I had things I wanted to do. But the actual moment where I decided to leave was basically because Stanford has like a two-year leave of absence limit. And I had hit that limit. And so it was kind of like, okay, well, either I continue with this for the rest of my life or, you know, a good chunk of it, or I go back to school and do something else that I'm into. And so I decided to go back. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, that's actually very cool. You know, um, Stanford and other schools. Stanford's, I think, like you said, a very special place. The fact that um, the ability to be creative and flexible uh, has created like probably the best entrepreneurship program in, in the entire world. Um, one of the closest ones I could think of is the Water University of Waterloo in, in Canada, uh, where they were the first to have this co-op program where actually within the curriculum, they have to basically for like a semester or two go work professionally. And so many of like the, the founders like Instacarts and others who most recently come in the last 10 years plus have come from there. Um, yeah. Have you met some of like the your, your best friends and people who have started incredible companies at Stanford? I'm assuming uh, you have with like the degree you were in too. Yeah. You meet a lot of people who are either they join startups or they start their own. And especially the last few years, actually, I've noticed that people in my class or above or below me have started their own companies. It's, it's really cool to see. It's pretty incredible. And then uh, how did you decide to get into Microsoft? Was it um, like one of those experiences if someone come and say, hey, we're working on this project, you'd be a really good fit and it was exciting you. Uh, joining a big company is pretty complex depending on like what passion you want to get into, what projects, right? Yeah, totally. So Microsoft, it was kind of a choice that came from um, all of my other experiences. So in school, all of my internship opportunities were with startups or smaller groups. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to see what it was like to work for a bigger company. Because at that point, when I was graduating, I, I still didn't really know what I wanted to, quote unquote, do with my life, right? Um, as most college students don't really know, even though it's expected of them. So, um, you know, the Microsoft offer came and I thought, you know, Microsoft, I hear, is a great company. It'd be a great chance to see what a big company's like and kind of get a taste of it. And um, luck, it was it was before the pandemic hit, but looking back now, I'm very grateful that that's the job I took because a lot of other companies or startups had to actually rescind offers to incoming right. uh, candidates, right? So I felt very lucky to have a stable opportunity. Yeah, when the pandemic hit, there was a number, I believe it was almost like, uh, especially late stage uh, companies, uh, 20% cut off, 20, 25% of their workforce were laid off initially. Yeah. Granted, many of those people, because the markets have actually jumped back in, um, are at as good, if not better roles. So mm -hmm. it worked out. Um, but at the beginning, it was kind of an anomaly and everybody was really, you know, obviously fearful of what the situation was. Um, so that's great. You were at Microsoft and what was the projects you're working there? So I was an engineer, but it was kind of mm -hmm. more like a consultant role. Uh, I was in the cybersecurity space. So um, I was working with wow. a couple different bigger like clients and customers of Microsoft to secure their cybersecurity systems using Microsoft's products. Okay. So cybersecurity, yeah, I mean, you mentioned... Um, you've worked on a few, uh, different products. Um, I think it was cybersecurity, uh, fintech and something else. I, I forgot to uh, write it down, but like, so what, uh, what is intriguing about the cybersecurity part, uh, right now? Cause in, in my perspective, uh, it's very important. 
um, we're in this really interesting times, obviously politically, socially, uh, you know, social networks to even your, your own day-to-day, um, you know, uh, email systems and, uh, bank accounts, uh, and, and what's your thoughts on like cybersecurity as a, like a industry as a whole, um, now that you worked at Microsoft and worked on it, like products. Yeah, I think cybersecurity as an industry right now is working very hard to solve problems that are always going to have, like always going to come up as technology improves and things change over time. But I think cybersecurity at the core, which is why I was so interested in and still am so interested in it, is an identity problem or like an identity topic. It's about authenticating and verifying who you are. And this is my interest in this came from kind of growing up globally. Um, having multiple like citizenships and when I travel, having to deal with bank accounts and phone numbers and all of these things that are really difficult to prove and verify mm-hmm. your identity. I just remember like traveling and then not having my cell service and then being locked out of my bank account because I didn't tell them I was traveling and all of these things where um, you're just as a human being, as you're traveling around this one earth that we live on, I just right. feel like at my core, I just want this problem of identity to be solved. Um, and then if we somehow solve that identity issue of verifying who people are, then cybersecurity comes after that because it's all based on, you know, who the Internet thinks you are. Yeah, it's definitely a very fascinating uh, perspective. Actually, you mentioned the bank accounts. It's so real, um, but it's so fascinating now that digital uh, banking and systems um, from different countries and different platforms in Asia, are just like so much more seamless than it is here. I think finally we'll, we're seeing the likes of... Uh, you know, Apple Pay and Square, but even that, like, for example, how do you identify it's you? Uh, I know the, the crypto space does that, uh, and they're working on this type of stuff. Uh, but I, uh, I haven't seen it to like a user level and personal level outside of, let's say, your fingerprint and, uh, you know, logging into your iPhone, basically mm-hmm. having that protection level. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. One uh, side note, yesterday I was watching the, the Olympic uh and uh, the opening ceremony and Sean White was wearing his mask and they mm-hmm. they still recognized him in China. That's Sean White walking into the Olympic arena. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, some people are just iconic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> um, and then uh, after Microsoft, when was it part of the cybersecurity team and platform or was it just you you saw the need because what? Why don't you explain what you're doing right now? Web web AC. is it web AC? Is that how web, you say web-a-see. it? Like web web AC, like web AC. Yeah, yeah web AC. Um, it's really really fascinating, actually. Um, so love to hear more about it. Yeah. So the founding story of web AC really comes from that 2021 2020 kind of area uh, era during the pandemic. But unfortunately, my cousin had passed away during that time, not due to COVID, but due to some other circumstance. He was kind of a extreme sports type of guy. Um, oh. And so I, I kind of had a firsthand look of what happens when someone doesn't have a will and doesn't really hasn't managed uh, their assets or their estate or their things before they pass away. Because as young people, we don't really think about it. Yes. And um, I got together with my now co-founder, who I've been friends with for a while now. Uh, he had a similar situation. So his good friend's sister had passed away and she had a good amount of crypto, both in Coinbase and also non-custodial wallets. And uh, they worked for eight months to try to recover some of it. It's even with the sister the process was very painstaking. Again, like it's like mm. validating, you have to validate death, you have to validate your relationship, all these things and ho- hoops that you have to jump through. So we recognized that it was a huge issue. It's a huge industry. And more than that, we kind of focused in on the fact that our, our world is becoming more and more digital. And we have all these digital assets that we don't know how to deal with. 
um, and the the estate lawyers and the attorneys and the trust people don't know how to deal with. And so we decided to start WebAC to help people manage their digital assets for before and after. Wow, where do you even start? Uh, because it's so <laughs> complex, right? You have obviously the legal matter. Um, you know, you have the technology system matter. Uh, I'm assuming you have to plug into APIs from anywhere from even social media, like uh, Facebook, LinkedIn's and Twitter's of the world to wherever. Um, and each one of them have their unique policies mm-hmm. um, to, of course, um, financial means. So fintech and products there. Uh, h- how do you even like solve all this at once? Yeah, I mean it's not going to happen overnight, right? But uh, yeah. we're starting. We're starting with steps, and then each step is going to keep building over each other. So, like you're right on the social media side, you have the APIs, and every every um, platform manages it themselves. You know, like some a lot of platforms don't even offer a solution, which is a little bit frustrating. But that's what we're trying to kind of push for. Uh, but what we're seeing the most momentum is actually on the Web three side. So, like every day you hear about a giant new NFT collection making a lot of money, or people are buying land in the metaverse and all of these things that people are uh, kind of, it feels like a gold rush, right? Like every day everyone's doing something new and all of these digital assets are being created and more and more web three companies are popping up to replace like banks and to replace travel and insurance, all these things. Um, And so we see a great opportunity to kind of be the picks and shovels of this gold rush and helping users realize that at some point they're going to have to figure out how to manage all of this web three stuff uh, for mm-hmm. passing it on to your kids or moving it forward or having a backup and all of these things. So that's where WebAC is really going to thrive. Wow. Yeah. I, it's, it's like, I'm just like picturing it like that's one of the things to solve in each one of these things, like, uh, sorry, vertical wise. I mean, mm-hmm. like, for example, like you said, social media, um, it, I still see pictures and posts of people saying happy, bir- uh, happy birthday. I miss you. And it's like, oof. uh, if that person passed away, uh, can the family have access or not? It, it's just the little things like that. So let's take an example. Um, let's say hypothetically, which, you know, someone that doesn't have a will, uh, they get COVID, God forsaken, they pass away. Uh, at what point does, are you able to actually help them out right now? Or is it better for somebody to log in to like, what would see, like how, to, what's like a process right now that you're capable of doing? Uh, to helping with this. Yeah. So like all things, it's better if you prepare ahead of time, right? It's kind of like asking the same question of what happened if someone has a will before they die versus if they don't have a will before they die. Right. Um, And so even in the current legal system, uh, it's very difficult. So like just a reminder that everyone should create a will, even though it's like painstaking and kind of difficult to think about. Um, But what we offer now Clearly, we'd like users to do it ahead of time, right? But what we do otherwise, if they ha- if their user has passed away and unfortunately has not signed up for WebSC and set their directives online, uh, we have a lot of resources. So we've actually partnered with a, a nonprofit uh, called Grief Matters, which is specifically focused on helping um, helping people kind of like grieve in this new digital world. And they have a ton of resources online. But uh, unfortunately, if you don't do anything before you pass away, uh, there's there's a limited amount to what you can do. The process is pretty similar to what we've gone through with my cousin and my co-founder's uh, uh, friend as well. So it's really fascinating. Okay, so and and what? Uh, where are you guys at now? Have you? Is it just you two? Uh, have you raised capital? Um, do you have a team? Are you uh, looking to grow? What's like some next projects? That's pretty exciting for uh, obviously. Yeah, so we have a, a team that's growing. We're five full time and a couple part time, couple contractors. Um, 
and where we're actively hiring. So that's been really exciting to kind of find new talent and people who are excited to work on this huge problem because the opportunity, as you can imagine, is uh, kind of limitless. Um, we've raised we've raised a pre-seed round, uh, which went really well. We actually, um, it was more of like an accidental raise. So uh, we weren't going to take any money. It's a good kind of bootstrap stuff these days. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But friends and family kind of heard about what we were doing and they wanted to support and get in on it. So we did take some checks and ended up raising a round. Um, and then we're raising our seed. So we're moving really quickly. Um, our crypto products coming out um, likely in March of this year. So it's pretty exciting. That is really exciting. And, uh, oh, I'm, in, I'm intrigued to learn more about the crypto side. Uh, what, a, what, um, what platform are you guys going to work on? Are you going to work on like uh, Ethereum, Solana? What's, uh, what is uh, Stacks, Block Stacks? Uh, is there certain platforms you're deciding to create a, this or do you in house? Yeah, so we're specifically supporting uh, Ethereum, like ERC first, so ERC20, ERC721. Uh, but of course, we're going to expand, uh, looking at a couple different chains that would be best to move to next, but we're going to start off with Ethereum. Okay, awesome. Awesome. And then uh, have you, what is some, I can imagine there's so many challenges you're dealing with, right? Uh, <laughs> how do you how do you create a company to actually like, to? I don't want to know, like people like, there's this term disruption, like disruption almost become... It was an excitement turn the last 10 years then became really bad because everybody is like, oh, you're going to come and disrupt our industry. Uh, I think it's like evolving. Like we're all evolving to get into tech and your, your platform seems like it's like a necessary need uh, in this day and age. So how are you guys evolving um, to, yeah, again, uh, break some of these barriers that are probably bottlenecks or legacy setups from the government um, on the legal matter? Mm-hmm. Um, again, to you know, having access to an API that's maybe blocked by a social network. Um, you know, how do you how do you work to, through these challenges? Yeah, I think that's kind of the beauty of this Web three space that is just emerging. Like, even though yeah. you know, blockchain's been around for a couple years now, uh, it's really only been picking up this past like two years. Um, and so, the technology and the integration with our current world, or like the, let's say the Web two world, is still kind of gray area and finding its footing. You know, uh, this is the first year where crypto taxes are a thing we have to think about. Um, and moving yes. forward, it's going to be the same with uh, like asset ownership. Um, and asset management moving forward as well. So the good thing about where we stand and we've positioned ourselves is we're not necessarily competing with anything traditional, right? We're not doing traditional wills. We're not doing traditional estate. We don't touch that kind of stuff for now. Okay. Uh, okay. So we see ourselves as filling a need that these people uh, need to have, like, right? So financial advisors may have customers coming to them and asking, what do I do with my crypto? Um, and they don't know what to tell them. So we're filling that need there. Got it. Well, hey, this is very exciting. What is like a like if if you're just a user, uh, is this for a consumer level uh, or is this more for like enterprise? Like who who would be the best fit to say uh, you could try us right now? Oh, so we're in beta right now. So we're we're have a couple hundred users in beta, but when we release um, around March, we're, that's going to be to the public. So it's going to be. Um, like clearly, we're going to have consumer users on the platform, but any with any sort of death tech or you know mortality related product, it's really hard to get people to care. Just like how the will industry has issues getting mm. people to care. Yes. Um, so we're we're definitely looking at more of a B two B direction. So you could see us uh, working with financial like financial groups. So we can see us working with insurance groups, working with DAOs, uh, DAOs yep. Yep. Uh, in the in the Web three space. Um, I think this this applies to literally everybody. You know. <laughs> yeah. No. That's uh. It's really exciting. And what is your, uh, what do you see is like a, 
the next step? Were you, uh, what's your big push? You said you're going to go live uh, in March. You're going to do a digital South by? Uh, no. <laughs> Historically, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, you know, they're like everybody would go and do something at South by, especially a consumer based product to get a lot of traction. Now, right. um, you try to get a lot of splash in different channels. Um, you know, so, I mean, last year people were pushing things on Clubhouse. I think it's not as like, uh, effective as, a, as, as for announcements. Um, but like, I know Twitter, they do a good job and other channels. I'm assuming you're looking at that. Are you looking at like a uh, angel list and, or, um, any of those channels? Oh yeah. We're, we're pretty much looking everywhere. We're trying to meet people that need this like immediately where they are. So if you got it right. Just Twitter is big on um, kind of Web3 space. Uh, we're looking at a couple different other channels. We're looking at discords We're uh, we're kind of doing it all. And we're we are coming. also looking at South by, so <laughs> we'll see. Oh, nice. Okay. <laughs> That's exciting. Um, and then, I mean, you mentioned you were, uh, you guys were working with grief matters and nonprofits. I did notice there is a nonprofit. I'm a big time coffee fan. Bean Voyage uh, is a nonprofit you're supporting uh, with regards to coffee bean makers. And uh, you want to just high level, what is uh, this nonprofit about, actually? Yeah, Bean Voyage is absolutely incredible. So they're a nonprofit that works with uh, female coffee producers in Latin America, uh, starting with Costa Rica. And they're trying to kind of reduce that gender gap when it comes to like producing coffee, but also to support the actual. Uh, the farmers themselves that are making the coffee. Because if you imagine um, the the chain of production from the farm to the coffee cup that you drink as like a, a Western person who goes to the you know third wave coffee shop down the street and buy a $6 coffee, there's yeah. a lot of hands that it passes through and the money is funneled out of that. So the farmers aren't getting a large chunk of what you're, what you're paying for. So it's all about education, it's about resources, it's about training, and they're, they're doing a really amazing job, and they're expanding to new countries this year as well. Um, I recently joined their board, so it's um, just trying to support them in any way I can. That's exciting. Uh, yeah, I mean, I can imagine with like distribution, the, the, the level of uh, you know, payments for any, anybody who does this is uh, pretty light. So uh, yeah, kudos to helping out people who, who are doing it, especially the fact that this is such a daily uh, product that everyone has almost in, Cal- in America. As I say, just California, it's not true. It's, uh, <laughs> uh, it's a huge consumption product. Um, so yeah, what's your, out of curiosity, what's your favorite uh, coffee like products are, uh, and blends? Yeah, so I, man, I love talking about coffee. But every morning I make coffee with this thing called a Vandala, and it's a Costa Rican coffee maker thing mm. that kind of looks like a Chemex, but it has a spout and a handle like a teapot. Um, and I, I brew it in there like a drip coffee every morning. But some of my favorite blends, uh, my favorite coffee shop in the world is JNS Coffee in Minnesota. Uh, but I've got definitely grown to love some of the coffee shops in San Francisco, uh, like Ritual. They have a lighter roast that I really like. Um, but yeah, I'm just a coffee fan, whatever it may be. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've uh, I've been you know using the Chemex and making my own coffee in the mornings. In the past, obviously, before the pandemic, I'd go every day and grab my f- favorite blend from good old Phil's was uh, the Turkish dark blend. I still get that, but now I'm also leaning towards like the Ethiopian lighter blends. And my favorite coffee right now is this uh, one from uh, Highwire out of uh, Berkeley area. The core is spectacular. Um, oh. I think you should try it. You like it. I'll definitely have to try that. Yeah. And, and, and uh, with the time remaining, I was wondering, what's your thoughts on like 2022 and the future as far as like what excites you the most um, and what's lying ahead? 
Oh, that's a great question. I think, like, from a personal level, um, I'm really excited to get back to Japan. So unfortunately, because of the pandemic, you know, international mm. travel is not the easiest. Um, so going to see my family there, getting back there is top of my personal list as Micah. But um, from a more professional level, I'm just really excited to see kind of how this space expands and how it changes. And obviously, my company, I'm excited for this, but also how it fits into the greater ecosystem as who we are as people um it's we're going to be living in a hybrid world wherever that means and we are now like where we're talking over the internet we're not talking face to face anymore and this is just how it is so i'm excited to see what how we adapt as human beings and how relationships change and things like that yeah i think uh it is definitely amplified to another level for all of us i mean look we're we're doing this podcast online uh versus in person but mm -hmm. i think it's even more so with like for example, my brother and uh, my nephew and what they're, what they're doing at school, uh, they also have a hybrid solution. They're going to grow up to a different, like this is embedded in them, like mm -hmm. a device in their hand all the time um, as part of the education level. So yeah, I'm excited. And this has been great. I mean, the, thank you so much for coming in uh, to the Chaubert Show and telling your very unique story and hope everybody enjoyed it. Uh, and if you have any other last tidbits you want to share, feel free to share right now. Um, otherwise, thank you so much, uh, Micah, for uh, coming on. Yeah, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you again, everybody.